Oh, Lord, I hate being wrong. Hey, everybody, I'm Steve Green with Bill Whittle and Scott Ott, and this is Right Angle, brought to you by the members of BillWhittle.com. Uh, gentlemen, you know, I was not actually nervous about nuclear war with the Soviet Union back in the bad old days, despite all the rhetoric and all the missiles and all the rest. And the reason was mutual assured destruction, or MAD, which meant both sides had so many nukes, we could destroy the world so many times that it would be absolute madness for anybody to launch a first strike because it would be the end of humanity and maybe all life on Earth. So let's not do that. But what happens if we've reached a point where we've gotten so lax that another competitor might see a window of nuclear opportunity opening against us in the not too distant future. Um, anyway, gentlemen, that's what I got from this uh, new report I read in Real Clear Politics on Mondays by a couple of defense analysts named Norman Haller and uh, Peter Pry. And the scenario they painted is by about 2030, China will have enough missiles with enough warheads to take out our entire fleet of Minuteman missiles in a surprise attack, leaving the American president with a very unpleasant choice. And the choice would either be to accept the new status quo, where one third of our nuclear triad is gone, or he could launch a counterattack on China and probably Russia too, which would not be big enough to take out everything they will have in 2030, leaving them with no choice but to retaliate against the only targets that they would have left against us, and that would be places like New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, St. Louis, Austin, all of our population centers. Um, Scott, if you're the American president and this happens to you, which one of those awful choices do you go with? Well, first of all, let me just say that I've never felt better about living in the exurbs um, <laughs> Same. Living far away from the core of the city and uh, any kind of manufacturing apparatus. Um, you know, I, it's so hard to speculate about things like this. Um, I grew up during this time when we were all supposed to be afraid of an imminent uh, Soviet attack uh, with nuclear arms and the American response and then the, uh, you know, the long nuclear winter that would follow. Um, I can't honestly say that it ever really concerned me. Um, and it's kind of like you and it's and, and I was older than you. So, uh, you know, ostensibly anyway, I was a little more aware. However, I did not have your like seven year old sensibility of studying the details of mutually assured destruction. I was in my teens. A... <laughs> I was a weird teenager, but I was in my teens. <laughs> So I didn't have as cogent a reason for not being afraid of it. I, I just kind of figured that that's, that's just not something people are going to do. So even under despotic regimes, uh, those regimes, in my view, I've always felt like they were, the people within those regimes were as much prisoners as those that they were oppressing. And uh, so given the opportunity uh, to destroy everything, that they would step back from the precipice. And as Bill uh, mentioned in our backstage episode, visible to members only at BillWhittle.com, um, this has happened twice in history where the, uh, the, the Soviet system in essence, failed because of humanity, <laughs> because there were two individuals who said, "Niet," And uh, so, I, you know, I've still always counted on that that way. Now, we really, in a sense, the, the Chinese communist government is still that sort of hidden kingdom 
that we don't fully understand. And there are a handful of China experts who at American universities who are studying this stuff, but I don't think we can fully comprehend the way they think. So as usual, I think we're back on on Reagan's uh, old credo, which is trust but verify and and find ways to get as much intel as we can and guard ourselves against the negative consequences of these things. But it's hard to imagine any American president uh, just unleashing a full-bore counterattack, even in the event of a first strike. Well, the the point the authors were making is, absent our 450 Minutemen missiles, which would be taken out in this theoretical first strike, we don't have the capability to launch an overwhelming counterattack. We simply don't have enough sea-launched uh, uh, Trident missiles, and presumably this first strike would include our nuclear air bases like the, the big one in Nebraska. Um, so the point is we couldn't hit back in a way that would be meaningful without them being able to hold our, our cities hostage. Well, um, and, I, and I can't imagine that the, that the Minuteman, uh, you know, locations are so bereft of defense, like we don't see anything coming until it's too late, in which case, why bother even having these things if you know yeah. that in a first strike, we'd lose them all every every scenario? Ah, well, we may have cut down too far. That's that's what I'm afraid of. Bill, I don't actually worry about this kind of scenario happening, or at least, at least I don't yet. But between uh, what the Pentagon is calling Beijing's strategic breakout, they're, they're digging holes in the ground, silos for another 230 ICBMs that could hold, well, up to 2,300 uh, warheads, which would be very bad news for us. Uh, we saw their, uh, their hypersonic missile test a couple of weeks ago. Uh, should we be having a Sputnik moment right now when it comes to China? We should be having a Sputnik moment right now, but I don't think China's the problem. No. Uh, let's Since that's the topic of the show, let's just deal with that real fast. Uh, China's building more uh, silos because China wants to be recognized as a world superpower. And world superpowers have a certain number of rocket silos and a certain number of nuclear missiles. And China is all about perceived in, uh, inferiority. Their inferiority complex runs everything. Everything they do. So, uh, yes, they're going to put in enough nuclear weapons so that they can say we have more nuclear weapons than anybody. Now, you mentioned the Cold War and all the time we spent underneath Soviet nuclear missiles and they spent under ours. And one of the things I remember from those days is a saying that went to something to the effect of, you know, just one 50 megaton thermonuclear hydrogen bomb can ruin right, your whole day. day. And, uh, and, and so that is true. So essentially, Steve, as far as I think I can see, as long as the United States has the ability to deliver a single thermonuclear hydrogen bomb over Beijing, there is no equation where that first strike attack makes sense. We certainly would have enough weapons to do much more than just put one bomb over one city. Oh, yeah. So just to play your scenario out for the fun of it, and I'll get to what I think the real threat is. If this scenario comes true and they launch a decapitation strike against our ground-based Minutemen missiles, and we're only left with the sea triad, what these guys are saying is, we wouldn't have enough to take out all of their stuff. My response would be, you launch nuclear weapons against my country, we're gonna take out enough of your airfields so that you, we will have your undivided attention. And from that point forward, we will retain enough of our nuclear deterrent to melt every single one of your major cities. And that only takes 15, 20 warheads. We don't have to, we don't have to hit them back as hard as they hit us. If it were me, I'd launch a nuclear counterstrike against their military targets. And then I would say, 
then we'd have a serious conversation. But look, as long as we can deliver, essentially, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly here, as long as we can deliver a, a essentially one H-bomb where it hurts the most, then I don't see any reason why they would why they would do this. So I'm not overly concerned about a Chinese first nuclear strike. Now, with that said, there are two things that I am concerned about. One of them is the appearance of weakness on the part of a country that is not willing to keep up with somebody else arming up. When you're dealing with somebody like the Chinese or the, the Nazis or the Soviets or anything else, it's all about the perception of strength. They're not fully sane people in the sense that we understand the term. And if you don't like that, China, then stop fishing in everybody else's waters. Stop, be, stop doing everything that you're doing that's illegal. Start getting into some inter international treaties. But it's the perception of weakness that is a danger, Steve, from a conventional point of view. So if we don't keep up our nuclear arsenal, that will be yet another signal to the Chinese that we are a declining power, that we're not a serious power. And I think that puts us at more risk for a conventional war in, in place of Taiwan. But just to put a button on all of this, if you want to ask me what I'm afraid of in terms of weaknesses in American defense, it is the astonishing deterioration of the human element. We had lost a, um, we'd lost an amphibious carrier, the Bonhomme Richard, because a disgruntled Navy uh, uh, sailor set fire to it. And the incompetence of the commanding officer, the incompetence of the, of the crew in terms of the, which is not really their fault in terms of firefighting techniques and so on, we lost what is essentially a small aircraft carrier because one guy decided he didn't like the Navy. A couple of weeks ago, one of our three Seawolf-class submarines, the top submarine in the world, the most effective submarine in the world, the Virginia-class that we're building a lot of is a scaled-down version of the Seawolf, USS Connecticut, hit a rock. Uh, and uh, submarines are not supposed to hit rocks. Commanding officer was relieved. The XO was relieved. I think the chief of the watch was relieved. The Connecticut was probably damaged badly enough so that it will not return to service. So there's our uh, amphibious... Uh, one of our amphibious carriers, we've got three or four of those things, Bonhomme Richard, gone. One guy mad at the Navy, that asset is gone. Guys hitting underwater rocks because they're not paying attention to where they are. One of our three best attack submarines, probably gone forever. I saw a report that, that story said, was pitched as saying the reason why they hit that, it was an uncharted underwater mountain um, that, that was not on the maps um, that should have been The Navy that. just relieved that was, the captain, the XO, and the uh, chief enlisted officer on that boat for uh, uh, loss of that's, faith. I would have given it to them. I would have given it to them as an un, as an unmarked underwater thing. But you don't relieve the commanding officer or any of that stuff if that's the case. So clearly there's more to the story than that. And I saw a story uh, today. Uh, I think I saw it in Spunit where um, where there are reports of, for, for the last 20 years, people supplying the steel for the submarine hulls were faking the strength of the steel. They were lying about how strong the steel was in the submarines that our that our sailors uh uh, go out to sea and just plain lied about it. That's what you should be deathly afraid of. You should be deathly afraid of administrative errors. You should be deathly afraid of of um, of the idea that a single individual with a with a bad attitude can take out an asset of that size. And you should most especially be afraid of the fact that the command director of the United States Navy didn't catch any of these things, didn't train the crews to deal with them, has allowed this to get worse and worse and worse. And now we have a, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who says things like, uh, 
uh, domestic terrorism and, uh, and racial intolerance and global warming are our primary threats. This is the kind of Navy you will get with that kind of leadership. It's the kind of military you'll get with that kind of leadership. That scares the living daylights out of me. And that is a problem that we can solve. And whether we will solve it or not is uh, still to be seen. Yeah, that was that was really good stuff. And I, I can actually sum up what Bill just said in, in one word. And the word is readiness. <laughs> As usual. Readiness. Yep. That is the key ingredient we're missing. Ready, readiness means having a capable nuclear force. It doesn't have to be huge like the Cold War days, but it can't consist of nothing but 50-year-old missiles and too few sea-launched ballistic missiles. Um, we, need, we need a Navy that is large enough to cover the oceans at our trade and is well-trained enough that we're not hitting rocks underwater, taking out multi-billion dollar attack submarines. Uh, ready or running into other ships, we lost, we oh, had yeah. two destroyer collisions. Readiness means maintaining those ships. Oh, good Lord, you see the condition of some of our warships right now, and it's sad. Readiness means maintaining our air fleet, ready to go. I mean, we may have to go back to having Air Force bombers on standing watch again, like we did back in the bad old days. But that improves your readiness because you've got those pilots, you've got those air crews, you've got those ground crews training 24-7. It all comes down to readiness. But the most important readiness element has to be the man at the top. And it means not having a commander in chief who is literally asleep at the wheel. And that's your right angle on that. Brought to the members of <clears throat> Pardon me, by the members of BillWhittle.com. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.